We're glad to have you guys with us uh, in this busy season, holiday. I'm glad some of you are here. Uh, pretty good attendance, so I'm, I'm thankful for that. Just to give you an idea of what's going on in the church, on January the 10th, uh, I will start a two-year series on the book of Psalms. Uh, Keith and I have discussed that. I'm going to start the book of Psalms. Uh, David Gibson is going to start uh, Grace Bible Institute again. He will start on this on this January the 10th also, and he will be doing a Bible survey. He's going to be look, doing Old and New Testament surveys for those who need uh, that kind of instruction. Uh, and uh, so he will start that again in January the 10th, and then Keith will be starting a an unknown small New Testament uh, book. On January the 10th also. So we're going to crank up a, a new order here. We're going to all start it with something new. So plug in where you want to be. And uh, hopefully we will all be built up in the most holy faith in the word. And uh, so that's what we're going to start on January the 10th. So uh, wherever you need to be. You have friends that need to be particular places. You let them know. And uh, we will uh, commence a new a new book as we start a new year. So I uh, just want to let you guys know that. Uh, Let's turn with me if we'll finish Second uh, Peter today. We're in Second Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 11 through 18. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, 11 through 18, where this is a lesson 11. This will be the last one in this book. And, uh, of course, we're going to finish uh, uh, this chapter today. So let me look at uh, chapter 3, verse 11. And the, and the title for today's lesson is, What Manner of Persons Ought We to Be? What manner of persons ought we to be as we see the day of the Lord approaching? So let's look at the, the text today, verse 11, chapter 3, Second Peter. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them, uh, in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in, <coughs> excuse me, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. So as we finish this book, uh, Peter... Uh, ends with three imperatives. Remember when we did First Peter, we looked at seven foundational imperatives that Peter used throughout the book, and we went that route because that book is 
pretty difficult to outline and the thoughts seem to be hard to organize. That's why I did it that way. In this book, I haven't gone this way, but there are four major and foundational imperatives in this book. We looked at the first one back in the first, uh, second study. We looked at it in chapter 1, verse 10. We looked at uh, this first imperative, Therefore, brethren, uh, be more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, and we talked about the, the evidences that we are in Christ, the evidences that we are elect, the evidence that we are His, and we looked at godly living and growing in godly living, being partakers of His divine nature, having the Zoa life, the, the Spirit leading us, into all things that were necessary to grow in grace. And so we looked at that. And so these three imperatives that we're going to look at will all dovetail with this first imperative, and they all come together in a cohesive unity, uh, unity of Scripture, which is typical of all Scripture written by God Himself. So there's, no, there's nothing in it that uh, is contradictory, and it all is unified, and it's in perfect harmony, and it teaches us great lessons about the faith. And so we'll look at these three moral imperatives as we get into this. Remember we said an imperative is a command. And it's a uh, something that must not be avoided. It is something that is absolutely necessary and critical to us as His people. It is authoritative and it is... Uh, it is, uh, and it connects one with another as it builds building blocks into us looking at what matter of persons we ought to be. So let's look at this as we start. If you, if you don't have a board in front of you, which some of you can and some of you can't see, uh, Roman numeral one, we're going to, uh, we're going to look at verse 11. It says, therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved. And so what we talked about last week in great detail, and I'm just going to sort of go over it quickly today. We talked about the heavens uh, passing away with the great noise. We talked about what the great noise was. We talked about the, the Greek literal word was the passing of an arrow or the crackling of a fire. And we talked about that. We talked about the, the earth melting with fervent heat. And we talked about the different opinions about what elements were. Uh, the old Greeks thought the elements were fire, wind, rain, and earth. And we talked about that. The, even the, before that, the, the old-timers thought that the elements were the sun, the moon, and the stars. But we looked at the basic Greek word for elements, and we came to the conclusion that the elements were the founding blocks of, of matter. And we talked about their protons and electrons and neutrons and all of the foundational building blocks that stack up in order to exist. And we talked about that, that Christ himself sustains all of these elements, and so we are all together because of his power to uphold the elements. And so we, by his word, he will dissolve the elements, and he will rejuvenate the elements. He will not annihilate them, but he will bring them back and recreate them. And so we talked about that in good detail. So as we start this uh, ending to this book, 
uh, what manner of persons ought we to be because we need to understand that the day is approaching. There is going to be a day when Christ, and we looked at this definition, the day of the Lord, it's a time of special intervention when God specially intervenes in human history to bring about judgment. And we talked about it. It's not a single event, but it is progressive. And we've talked about, we read from Isaiah 2, we read from Isaiah 13, we read from Isaiah 24, we read from uh, Amos, and we read from Joel, and we read from Zechariah, and we read from some of the words of Christ, that there is going to be a day when Christ specially intervenes in the events of men in history to bring about His judgment. And we looked about some of the ways that this progressive uh, event has occurred in history, and we looked at World War One, we looked at World War Two, we looked at the Holocaust, and some of these special events that God has brought into being upon man in His sovereignty to bring uh, to bring men to to call upon His name. And then, as we look at what we've gone in the history, we anticipate the future, just as Christ brought the flood on the earth. Just as Christ, just as God brought the flood on the earth, just as He brought the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah on the earth, so we now anticipate that because He's done it in the past, because He's holy, He will do it in the future because He's holy. As, as we, to, as we rebuke the scoffers who say, where is the promise of His coming? And everything's been the same since day one. So, so we, all of these things anticipate and uh, cause us to look forward to what is going to occur in the future. So we talked about this. Uh, some of the things that we're seeing now today in 2020, and we're going to see as we turn the page into 2021, we're going to see some birth pang events. And I'm talking about the birth pangs of the tribulation. Uh, these are things that Jesus spoke of quite uh, readily in, in three of the Gospels. Uh, he spoke of these. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew 24, because the day of the Lord is is becoming more and more imminent, as we see that day approaching, I, I get asked all the time, and I bet Terry does too, uh, and all of us who who who, who minister in some way, uh, what are we to do when uh, lawlessness abounds? What are we to do when government is chaotic? What are we supposed to do, and how do we live our lives? Uh, when when all these things seem to abound and it is just unspeakable what occurs and we don't even can't even identify what a male or a female is in this society today and everything is wrong every the, the good is evil the evil is good the sweet is bitter the bitter is sweet everything's turned how are we to live and the answer to this question the answer that Peter wanted to give his people written to them in their day that applies to us in our day is the same. We are to be faithful, obedient followers of Christ, adhering to His Word, obeying Him in faithfulness. And that's how we cope with the world system. That's how we cope with what goes on. We don't join the world. We don't become fearful. We don't be anxious. We're not anxious. Uh, we are not to join the crowd. We are to be different and separate. And we ought to live our lives as if Christ could return yesterday. So we're to live our lives faithfully and obediently with our lamps burning, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, busy doing what He called us to do. Everywhere we go, everything we think, everything we watch should be based upon the fact that Christ could return. And we should do that anyway because He lives in us. 
Okay, so that's what that's the answer to the question. Uh, how should we live our lives? It's in faithfulness and obedience. So we want to we want to hear him come when he comes back. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is should be the motivation for everything we do every day, and our lives should reflect the reason why we were created in the first place. That's to give God glory in everything we do. So I ask me and I ask you. Are you living with the attitude that his return is imminent and it is a preeminent thing in the way you live your life? And only you know that. Your spouse knows that. Your husband knows that. Your wife knows that. Your kids know that. Your acquaintances may or may not know that. But be assured that God knows it. And we need to examine ourselves to make sure of our calling. And this is how our lives should be in in. And not in fearful expectation, but in, but in joyful expectation that Christ is coming and soon we're going to be in his presence. So that's the way we should live our lives. So as we look to this, we remember the words of Jesus as he tells us about the birth pangs that are going to precede the tribulation. And we see them very prevalent in our society today. Look at Matthew 24. Uh, just a few verses. I'm not going to read all these. I don't have time, obviously. But uh, if, you, if you're writing these down, uh, uh, you can write down Matthew 24, 4 through 8, and 11 and 12. Look at Matthew 24, 4. Jesus is answering the disciples' questions, the sign of your coming. There's three questions, and he answers them differently. Uh, he's answering this question, what is the sign of your coming? And Jesus says to his disciples, uh, which is going to relate to us as we are his followers of the way, also take heed that you're not deceived. For many are going to come in my name saying, I'm Christ. This is a spirit of Antichrist. We see that in, in Muslim faith. We see that in, in Mormon faith. We see that in, in many of the other ism faiths out there today uh, who deny the deity of Christ and, and, and claim that they themselves are Christ. Uh, New Agers, all these different movements. I'm Christ and will deceive many. And you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. All these things are going to come to pass, but the end isn't yet. Ethnic group against ethnic group. Nation against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. And there's going to be famines, pestilences. And we know what's going on. Earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. So this coming day of the Lord is uh, labeled here by Christ as the birth pangs. These are things that are happening today, and they're going to get more and more prevalent. They're going to get closer and closer together, and they're going to become more and more painful. So we see these things occurring as Christ warned us. Look at verse 11. He says, false prophets are going to rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, that's the definition of today, lawlessness will abound. The love of many is going to grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved, and the gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. We're going to see evangelists come on the scene, Jewish evangelists during the tribulation. We're going to see angels proclaiming the whole gospel to the whole earth. So these things are coming. The birth pangs are coming. He says it again in Luke 21. He says it from a different viewpoint, uh, a little different angle. Look at Luke 21, 8 and 9, as we see these the coming day of the Lord as seen in the birth pangs. Uh, look at Luke 21, 8 and 9. Uh, uh, 8 and 9 is uh, pretty similar. 
so I won't read 8 and 9, but look at 25 through 28 of Luke. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth, distress of nations, perplexity, seas and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then you're going to see the sign of the Son of Man coming. So we see these birth pangs as we see the day of the Lord coming. The tribulation itself We believe in this church that we're going to be taken out of this tribulation. It'll be a time of great judgment upon the nation of Israel. And it's going to be great judgment upon those who are faithless, those who are mockers, those false prophets. We've talked about the lost in the world. And this tribulation will occur uh, for seven years. And we can read about this in in the seal judgments. Uh, the trumpet judgment and the bold judgment of Revelation 6 through 18. So we see the coming day of the Lord is progressing. It's going to get worse and worse. and It's going to be more and more difficult as we see uh, the millennial reign of Christ after the tribulation. We're going to see Christ partially rejuvenate the earth. We're going to see some of the curse lifted. There's still going to be death, but there's not going to be baby deaths. And there's going to be the, a restoration of nature. You can you can sit on a cobra's nest and not be not be a bit and you can you can feed lions and there's going to be a partial restoration of of their created order uh, so we're going to see that but then at the end of the tribulation we see that that satan is going to be unbound and he's going to be loosened and then the final judgment is going to be upon him uh, and then we anticipate after the the, the great white throne judgment and after the millennium we anticipate the new heavens and the new earth and then we see that all the judgment has uh, has been accumulated and has occurred. God is, is righteous and all that he does, the righteous, we rejoice in his holiness and his justice as he brings judgment on the world and then we see the new heavens and the new earth. So these are what's talking about because these things are are closer to appearing. What manner of men ought we to be? So we look at these things, and so that's how we say hallelujah. That's what gives us the, 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 uh, the motivation to live godly, faithful lives because we see the end of the book. We know what's happening. We know how close it's getting, and we see that, and we anticipate it. So that should encourage you, encourage me to be faithful, to endure Okay, to endure. So I want to encourage you to endure. Now what he says is, he starts with this moral imperative. So let's start, go back to Second Timothy, chapter 3. Therefore is the, is the clue that this imperatives occur. It says, since these things will be dissolved, we've talked about that. What matter of persons ought you to be? That's the question. It's sort of like the psalmist when he says, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his blessings toward me? And that word render, Hebrew word, it means, how should I be caused to act? How should I surrender my life because of what he's done for me? And what should I become? And so this is a dovetail verse, the unity of scripture. And so as the psalmist asked, what shall I give or surrender to the Lord for all he's done for me? This is the question Peter asks us. How should we live our lives 
because of the imminence of the return and because of what he's done for us. We are partakers of his divine nature. We are inheritance of the faith. We have been kept until the day of salvation. We have an inheritance. We have a future. And so Peter, uh, in bold acclamation, says, how should we live our lives? And he says there's uh, four things that we should do. One, two, three, four. Yeah, four things we should do. First of all, he says, since all these things will be dissolved, what matter of persons ought you to be? That's the question. That's the moral imperative. This is the requirement. This is a commandment. And the answer is that we should be holy in our conduct. Uh, some uh, uh, translations say holy in our conversation. But what does it mean to be holy in our conduct and why? He says, he commands us, since we see the day approaching, we should be holy in our conduct. Uh, it's because of what he said in 1 Peter 1.15. Remember what he said in 1 Peter 1.15. And if you remember, I'm going to be pleasantly surprised. Who remembers what Peter said in 1 Peter 1.15? Why should we be holy in our conversation and conduct? As everybody goes backwards and looks to 1 Peter 1.15, this is a life verse. Memorize it. What does it say? Who's got it? 1 Peter 1.15. This is the why we should be holy in all of our conduct. Yes, Miss Chris, you've got it. So we're to be holy in all of our conduct because we are called by the Holy One. And as He is holy, that means He is completely different than any created being. He is morally perfect. And because He is holy, He who called us is holy. So we are to be set apart in all of our conduct. And there should be a distinction between the way we live our lives and the way the world lives our life. Now, if you look at that translation, holy in our conversation, our conversation is going to be the evidence of what's in our heart, okay? So how we speak and how we relate to one another and our relationships to one another and how we encourage one another or we discourage one another, how we build each other up or how we are critical of one another reflects our heart's condition. So Peter said, since he's coming soon, because he who called you is holy and separate and above the earth and, and completely different from the earth, he's holy, he's thrice holy. Because he who called us is holy, we're to be separate in the way we live our lives. And so my question to me, it's always more difficult on the teacher than the teachee because we are the ones who have to study this and we have to say, my gosh, do I measure up to what I'm telling my fine folks to do? Is my life holy in its conversation and conduct? And if I'm honest with you and me, the answer is not as it should be, not as it could be. Better than it used to be, thank God. But is it where it needs to be? And if he came right now, would he find me holy in my conversation and conduct? And that's the question you've got to ask yourself. And that's the scary question when we have to examine ourselves and see. Are you slipping? Have you, like the church of Ephesus, have you left your first love? Okay? Have you compromised morally? 
politically, spiritually, ethically, in business or whatever it is? Is he not the priority in your life? Are there idols in your life that have gotten the priority of your heart where they shouldn't be? Have you become covetous? Are you uh, not content with your life? Uh, not content with your family? Not content with your relationships? Not content with with all these things? And that's what we got to see because when He comes, we're going to stand before Him and we're going to give an account at the Bema seat and we're going to be judged according to our motivations <coughs> and how we've been faithful to what He's given us and He's given us all a gift. He's given us all talents and abilities. So I ask you and I ask me, are you being faithful to what He's given you? Have you been consistent in, in being faithful to Him? Does your life give Him glory? And so, uh, and so we're to be called different in our conduct and our conversation because we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus and we're not our own. So, very, very, as we finish this year and look to... We're not, we're not setting up new leaves and we're not making commitments that we're going to lose weight and exercise and blah, blah, blah. We, I ask me and I ask you, reflect on this year. It's been a horrific year for many people. This year has either drawn you closer to Christ or it's, or it's caused you to flee from Him. Be cold toward Him. I pray that this difficulties in this life and this year have caused you to call on His name and seek Him. But it's either going to do that or it's going to make you cold and indifferent. My prayer for me and for you is that we see these days getting more difficult. My great worry about me is that I get disillusioned. I get discouraged. I get frustrated. I think in my head, well, this is going to happen in God's sovereign. There's nothing I can do about it. So I become apathetic and I become lukewarm. And I throw up my hands and I say, I'm the only one left, Lord, in my pride and arrogance and I forget that He's still in control, right? I saw a little chuckle out of Russell and Sally. So, that is the danger for me personally. It's not to fall away. Because he's holding on to me. But it's to become disillusioned and discouraged. To think ministry doesn't matter. To think, right Terry? Terry's shaking his head. That's the great challenge for me. That's for Terry. That's for many of you. Is not to become disillusioned and apathetic and lukewarm. And and uh, that is the great challenge for us as believers. I think for many of you in this room, that's the great challenge. So I just want to encourage you to be holy in all of your conversation and in all of your lifestyle. Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 uh, that we're to be separate and we're not to, we're to come out from among them. That's the world system. That's not to be so intrinsically involved with lost people's lives that the leaven of their lives uh, leavens us and that bad company corrupts good morals. We need to be careful in who we hang with and who we befriend and whom influences our life. And we're to be very careful in doing that. Uh, I love what it says in Second Peter. Uh, Second Peter. Second uh, Corinthians. If you'll turn with me to Second Corinthians. Uh, one of my favorite texts, I say that in everything I read, 
I'm aware of that. I'm not a liar. I just love all the scripture. Let's go with 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I pretty much quoted it, but I just want us to, to, to look at it again. Second uh, Corinthians six fourteen. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What fellowship? What commonness does righteousness have with lawlessness? And what communion uh, uh, does does light have with darkness? And what accord has Christ with devil? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with the temple of idols? For you are the temple of the living God, and God has said, I will dwell in them, and I will walk among them, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate. Don't touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be your father, and you'll be my sons and daughters. Therefore, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's what it means to to conduct yourself in holy conduct and conversation. Everybody, uh, that's pretty self-explanatory. The problem is the application to each one of us. God knows, we know, we need to turn from it and repent and go back to the first love as He told the church at Ephesus. Secondly, it says that we should not only conduct ourselves in all manner of holy conduct and conversation, but it, then it says godliness. The godliness uh, is the spirit in which we do everything that we do. It's a spirit of reverence. Uh, and let me read you this from one commentator. When it says that we're uh, in all godliness, uh, and I just want you to think about this, in all piety... It's, it's, it's our worship, and it should be rever- reverential, and it should be in the spirits of reverence. When we worship, we're declaring His worth, and our lives should reflect our reverence and respect and our awe of Him. Uh, just to give you a, a very sick example of what this isn't. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about false apostles and false uh, teachers, and we said that they they mock things that they do not know, and they mock uh, angels. We talked about and they mock dignities. Uh, just this week, uh, you can Google it if you want. Uh, Google Bethel Bethel Church mocking angels, and it is a charismatic church. They are very well known for their blasphemies. But uh, the co-pastor of the church, a woman. Jenna James, I believe, Jen Johnson, I always miss names, whatever, hey. But Google it. She is on here talking to her congregates. Her congregates are laughing with her. And they're asking her, she's talking about the angels. She said the angels are before the throne of God texting. And she said the angels are for the God and they're having flatulent contests before the throne of God. People are laughing as she mocks things that she's not aware of. This is the very definition of what a false teacher and a false prophet is. Then she says, her view of God, she says this twice, in her opinion what God is, what Scripture says you think... You think I'm like you, Scripture says in Psalms, okay? So she says, I think God is a Aladdin like a genie. To me, he's like an Aladdin and a genie. And to me, he's fun. Anything else? 
And she just mocks his sovereignty. She mocks his irreverence for him. In the congregation, you can Google it, they're laughing. That is the definition of ungodliness. That is the very definition of a false teacher and a false prophet. And blasphemy and whatever else it is, it's, it's, it's horrifically wicked. And that's an example of what goes on today in many, many churches who have an irreverence for God. That's the very opposite of what a redeemed person and how a redeemed person should, should act. So, many verses, I don't have time, but you are aware of these verses. If you're writing these down, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, talking about what manner of men we ought to be and how we should walk worthy of the vocation wherein we're called. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, 8 through 13, Philippians, as we look at he who began a good work in us, He's going to finish and we should work out the salvation. He's, he's, he's given us the will and the desire to do His good pleasure. Uh, that's we're learning to be content, learning to do all things through Christ, learning that He will supply all of our needs according to Christ's riches. And then Colossians, all these verses, as, as, does, the, uh, as does all of Scripture, uh, brings us back to this essential point that our lives should be holy and faithful. So so Peter says your life should be holy in your conduct. It should be godly. And then it says, look here at what it says, looking for. We are to look for the return of Christ. Remember what it said in Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. That word looking is expectation. And it's, and it's happy. It is, it is, it is a, it is a, it is a preoccupation with his return and just being excited about it. You think your grandkids were excited about Christmas? You should be that same excitement as you anticipate Jesus coming back. And the only way you can have that excitement as you look for his return if your life is holy in conduct. I assure you that if you are in sin... If your life is characterized by sin, you do not look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. So, I ask you again, are you looking forward to and can you not wait to see Him come back? And if the answer is yes, that is an evidence that your life is aright before Him and that your lifestyle is consistent because you're not going to be ashamed when He comes back. So... Are you or aren't you? Only you know that. Are you thinking, well, if my, only my grandchildren would be saved and my daughter would be saved and all these things? That's not the question. My question to you is, are you anticipating with expectancy, joyful expectancy, are you looking for His return? Not just to be rescued from this hellhole we're in, okay, but because we want to see the face of our Savior who died for us. We want to be in His presence. So only you know the answer to these questions. And we can rationalize it, and we can say, but, 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 but the bottom line is, are you looking forward to His return? Okay? Answer yourself that question. 
And I'll answer it for myself. Looking for. Uh, that means uh, you're anticipating it. You expect it. And then it says something great here. Let me look at a couple of verses. Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13. Just some verses that are, I've, I've quoted 11.2 of, of Hebrews. 12.2 of Hebrews. Look at Titus 2.13. The same word. Titus 2.13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His special people who are zealous for good works. Are you looking for the glorious appearance? And then Jude, verse 21, as we've looked at the book of Jude here a lot, as we've looked at Second Peter, Jude 21. Jude 21, as we see this looking for, anticipating Jesus' return. Jude 21, it says, looking for, keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ and to eternal life. I've talked to a lot of people about this over the years, and, you know, sadly the answer I get is, I want to experience this first. I want this first. I want kids. I want grandkids. I want a better job. I want this. I want that. Believe me, these things pale in comparison. Pale in comparison to the future glory that we're going to have in Christ. Okay? Our eyes haven't seen nor has our mind imagined the things He has in store for us as people. So don't settle for what you're going to miss on the earth. You're not missing anything. You ain't missing nothing, right, Miss Sally? You're not going to miss anything. So have a future expectation. Now it says here, and this is drawn considerable ilk, hastening, it says looking for and hastening, hastening. What does that mean? And I ask the question, does what we do on this earth Change by one second the day the Lord Jesus will come back. So what does that mean when it says looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? It doesn't mean that what we do affects one second of His timetable. He's sovereign, right? But what does it mean when it says hastening the coming? Hastening the coming. Coming. Uh, it's a word, it means eagerly awaiting, but it has with it this connotation of hope. Uh, and that hope, as Scripture says in 1 John 3, 3, the hope purifies us as we are pure. Uh, and it also talks about uh, 1 John two twenty eight. Uh, this word hastening, we're looking for and we're hastening it. Uh, we see this in 1 John two twenty eight. Uh, it says, uh, little children abide in him, and when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So this phrase, hastening, does not mean that what we do on this earth will change one second the day when Christ will return, when God is determined it will happen. But it does mean, if you didn't catch that, it doesn't change one second. 
Because I don't witness to a guy down the street and because I'm not obedient to Christ doesn't change God's timetable. But what it does mean is that we have a co-responsibility with Christ to be faithful to what He's called us to do. So the means by which He brings about His church, He's decided to use His people. And how we explain that and how we come to grips with that is, uh, I've been struggling with that for 30 years. The, the, the balance between sovereignty of God and my responsibility. But the word hastening, if it's, we have an expectation, but it, but it doesn't change anything. If, if I don't witness to a guy and I don't evangelize a guy, that doesn't, that doesn't hold back God from his day when he's coming. But it simply means we have a responsibility and an accountability to God to be faithful in what He's called to do. And when we are faithful in what He calls to do, He will come then when He is ordained that He will come. So don't get hung up on that. Uh, we don't change God's plans because of our faithfulness. Uh, I like what one one reader says. He says, uh, Peter is using this, re- talking to his readers, uh, to God's chosen people to be his instruments for furthering his divine purpose. It's a call for aggressive Christian action. Evangelism and a believing intercession are divinely appointed means to accomplish God's purpose. So that's what it means, hastening the day, just cooperating with God as we go through this progress of sanctification and being faithful to him. Uh, And then lastly, it says, to the day of God. Uh, that's different than what we've been reading the day of the Lord. Uh, MacArthur, uh, whom I agree with on a lot of things, he think, he says the day of God is different than the day of the Lord. He says the day of God speaks of the eternal, eternal state after the millennium, after the tribulation. The day of God, he says, is a day in the eternal state when man's day will be over. The corrupting of the universe by man and Satan will have been terminated and judged finally and forever. So MacArthur says the day of God is different than the day of the Lord. That's his view, and his view is... uh, I don't see a great consensus out there for it. I don't disagree with it, but I think I think the primary means of this phrase, day of God, as I look at it and as I've studied it and I've read different commentators, what it really does to me is Peter is a big on the Christology of Christ. And he's big on the deity of Christ. And he mentions many times that Jesus has to be your Lord and Savior. And he equates, of course, Christ with God because he is. And what he's saying, the day of God, he's just finally equating the Father and the Son as one God and two persons. And he is just giving glory to Christ. And the day of day of the Lord is just synonymous with the day of God. Now, you can take that however you want, uh, but that is MacArthur's view. Pardon me? There... Yeah, the, the consensus is that the day of God and the day of the Lord are very similar, but written that way just to give glory to Christ and to make sure we understand He's fully God and fully man. So uh, however you want to determine that, I don't think that's going to be a, a life or death issue, but a, I think it's something for food for thought. Any questions on imperative one? I better hurry. I'm never going to finish.
Imperative number two is verse 14. Imperative two is verse 14. Look at verse 14. Therefore, there's your clue again that we're going to go into another foundational commandment. Looking forward to these things. We know what that is. I don't need to reiterate it. Save myself precious time. We understand what these things are. Now here's the commandment. Be diligent to be found by Him in peace without spot and blemish. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. In this imperative, He goes from holy conduct, from godliness, as we expectantly anticipate His coming. He talks about something a little different. It's the other side of the coin. He tells us that we need to be diligent. That we need to have an urgency. We need to have an imminency. And we need to work at it. There's no place for lazy Christians toward the coming of Christ. We need to be busy. And we need to be diligent. We need to leave no stone unturned in being faithful to Him. Unfortunately, in my life, sometimes I get lackadaisical. Sometimes I get... Lazy, right? But this scripture tells us that as we see these things approaching, we are to double our efforts in diligence. As we trust in Him, depend upon Him. It's like, uh, uh, I know that uh, several of you in this room, because you are older, have a greater imminent concern for your lost family members. And those of you know who I'm talking about. And you have a, and you, a fire is lit under you that every time you're around your lost family members, that you want to share with them the truth of the gospel. Because you understand the days in which you live and you have a diligence and an urgency in you and about you for your loved ones, right? And so you want every second that you can to be spent in the important things instead of the minutia of how was your day and how was work. How is your relationship to Christ and is your life consistent? Right, guys? That is what I mean by diligence and urgency. It's a, a fire is lit because you see what's going on. You know it's imminent and preeminent and you want to do your gosh darndest, right? To be faithful to your loved ones and to Christ. And so you have an urgency, and that's just life. Uh, my dad has this urgency. I know many of you on this screen have that urgency, and we should all have that urgency with our family, with our moms, our dads, our brothers, our sisters. We should all have that urgency. And so that's what it means to be diligent. Uh, and then it says uh, uh, it should, should be to be found in peace. That word, to be found, is a judicial term that when Christ judges you, that you are to be in Christ. That you are to have His robe of righteousness as your clothing. Okay? That you are to be found in Him. So when you are judged, you're judged upon how you are and what you are positionally and practically in Christ. He's always the standard. So it doesn't matter, Lord, Lord, haven't I done this in your name? Haven't I done this in your name? And haven't I been a good kid? And haven't I been, you know, my life is consistent and I'm not a sexually immoral person. I'm not a drunk. I'm not this or that. The question is, are you in Christ? 
Are you clothed with His righteousness? So when it says to be diligent to be found, it's the same thing as making sure of your calling and election. It's the same thing as making sure you're a partaker of the divine mercy. It's the same thing. It's all the same scripture, just versed differently and voiced differently. Uh, And then it says in peace. A beautiful word, irene, E-I-R-E-N-E in the Greek, and it means to be reconciled to God. So the only way we can be reconciled to the Godhead is through peace that's in Christ. And so he says to make diligent, to make sure that you are found in Him in peace. Okay? This does not mean that there's wars or rumors. This doesn't have anything to do with conflict between men and armies and and politicians and whatever. This is your one-on-one relationship with God. Is it in peace? Are you reconciled to Him? I love the definition. When you stand before God, uh, are you right before Him? Has He made your peace? Has He reconciled you to Himself? That's the imperative. And then it says... Uh, long-suffering is salvation. When he says this, he says, verse 14, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. That is in opposition to the false teachers and the false prophets. Remember it said they were spots in your love feasts. They were reefs that stand out in the ocean that cause your boat to crash. And they are, they are blemishes that have not had the stain removed. And Peter is saying, you're to be different than the false prophets and the false teachers, but you're to be the church that God is designed to be without spot and without blemished because you're found in Christ. That's just different verbiage, same thought. And, and that's, and then it says, the long suffering, when it says the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, that goes back to verse 9 that we talked about last week. That God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should what? All should come to repentance. We talked about what that meant and what it didn't mean. But we understood the primary reason that God is delaying His judgment today is that He's still bringing His people into the sheepfold. He's still saving His sheep. There are sheep out there that He is searching for and He will find like the lost coin. He's going to find them and He's going to bring them in because He's good and merciful. None of His sheep are going to be lost. So the day of the Lord appears to be stalled but isn't. But it is because he's long-suffering and merciful and he's still gathering his sheep into the sheepfold. And I pray that the people that you're being diligent about and ministering to will be included in that group. And you need to have that hope that they are, right? So you wait. You be faithful because God will bring his sheep in. And that's why he's hasn't come yet. And so that's what it means. His long-suffering is salvation. And uh, uh, and that obviously contrasts with the false prophets who mocked and said he's delaying his coming. They denied he was coming again. Uh, and then the last thing we see in this imperative, he talks about the Apostle Paul, about how difficult his writings are and how unstable and, un- and, and twisted men take what he says and twist it to their own destruction. This is just a confirmation that all Scripture is God-breathed and that His witness is from the Holy Spirit just as Peter's is. They all match. 
and that all Scripture is profitable for instruction and righteousness and rebuke, right? So that's what he's saying, that Paul's writings are difficult, but they are inspired and they are trustworthy. Uh, and then he says that the men try to twist them. And we said one of the, the primary focuses of the false prophet was to twist grace and to say well, you're not under the law anymore, but you're under grace. So you can live however you want to live. You have liberty to sin because you're under grace. And that's what the primary focus of Peter's reminder. Paul wrote those same things in Galatia to the church at Galatia and some other places. And that's the opposite of the truth. Liberty is not the freedom to sin, but liberty is the freedom not to sin and the ability not to sin. We looked about that many different times. So what that's what he's saying. They twist these truths and they twist grace. Lastly, imperative number three, verse 17. And it is another warning, but then it gives us a great finishing hope verse 17 imperative number three beloved since you know this beforehand everything we've talked about applies beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness he's saying to these people that he's writing to that they are steadfast that is a characteristic of their life and i hope i'm speaking to you that your steadfastness is a characteristic of your life And it is who you are in Christ. And so we assume that about you guys. And I assume that about me, that my life is faithful. But he says, don't fall from that. He is warning us that we all have an ability to temporarily fall away. We all have a tendency to think highly of ourselves and too highly of ourselves. So he warns us and Paul warns us, take heed lest you fall. We are not above being deceived. We are not above being led astray. But God, if we are His, will ultimately keep us from falling away completely. Do you hear what I said? Ultimately keep us from falling away completely. There were times in my life, and I've talked to many of you, there have been times in your life when you didn't resemble your Lord and Savior and you went through a time of wilderness travel and you went through a time of temptation and you have repented and turned to your first love, right? But Peter is just warning us, beware lest you fall away from your lifestyle of steadfastness. It can happen to anybody. Uh, it happened to Peter. You remember? He denied the Lord three times. It happened to him when he was walking on the waves. As long as he was looking at Jesus, he was good. But he started looking around at stuff and he said, whoa, he drowned. He almost drowned. And then Peter, even after the Spirit came upon him and after, after Pentecost, still struggled with how to deal with the Jews and, and how to fit the law and, and grace together. And, and Paul had to rebuke him for how he treated the Jews differently than when Gentiles were around. And then when Gentiles showed up, he was a different type of guy. So it is easy for us to fall away. So when we're talking about these false prophets and what we've said about them, uh, we cannot say that, hey, I would never fall for that. 
We need to understand that by the grace of God go I because they are smooth-talking devils. And they are very, very sheep-like in their clothing. And they come across as spiritual people that care for you. We need to be wise, right? We need to be wise. And what is the antidote from the danger? The antidote from the danger, the thing that will keep us from falling from our own steadfastness is what? Growing in the grace of our Lord and Savior and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Remember we said when we started this, one of the minor themes of first of Second Peter is knowledge. Kenosko. That means a general knowledge of God. But we said this is talking about an epikonosko. This is talking about an intimate, personal, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. It it is a part of knowing truth, and you have to and knowledge is part of knowing truth, but it's more than that. It's submission and it's and it's trust. And that's what the Christian life is. So an antidote against Falling from your own steadfastness. An antidote of being led astray by wicked men is to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There is nothing else that will keep us from falling away as He holds on to us. But we need to grow so that we are not tossed about like waves of the wind in doctrine, right? We need to be know what the Scripture says. If someone comes up to you with something that sounds right, you need to know that it's not right, and you need to know why it's not right, because the Scriptures are against it, and you need to know what that is. That's part of growing in the knowledge. I know many people that they're told something... uh, uh, and then they believe it because they don't know what the Scripture says, and they swallow it hook, line, and sinker. But it says to keep yourself from falling, you need to grow in the grace and the knowledge. Personal experience with a, with a loving God as we grow in Him and through Him and in Him, that is what keeps us from being falling from our own steadfastness. And ultimately, it all boils down to this, the last sentence of the last verse, to Him be the glory forever and ever. That's the doxology. It starts with, to Him who belongs, it starts out with worshiping God to our Savior, who's given us all the Zoa life necessary for life, and it ends with, it's all about Him, to Him be the glory. That's the worship of lives rightly lived before Him, expecting His soon return, living faithfully, being obedient, looking for and hastening His day. And I finished. I finished. Does anyone have anything to criticize or to compliment or to add to this lesson? Anything that you would like to add as we finish another book, as I get depressed, as we finish another book? Sixteen books we've done since we started this, and we're going to start Psalms, and it's going to take me forever. We'll do Psalms, and it'll take two years. And I hope in the middle of Psalms we get called up hither. I hope I don't finish Psalms. But he knows he knows the plans, and he knows the day. But we'll start Psalms on January the 10th, and uh, and I. If you stay with me, I appreciate it. If you need to go somewhere else, uh, I, will not, I will not harbor any resentment against you. You have good options in this church.
Yes. Yes. He is going to start Grace Bible Institute again, and he's going to do a, a, a Bible survey. It'll be some, I'm sure there will be some, uh, it'll be more of a basics class for new believers to get people uh, uh, up to snuff with stuff, and then he'll do an Old Testament and a New Testament. Keith, uh, Keith is going to do a small epistle, and Keith may even take a little R&R time as he works on his Ph.D., I don't know that yet, but he said he might. So, uh, uh, but that's what I'm going to be doing, and I will always do expository teaching. And but there's so many other things that many other people do very well, and I'm not one of those. So. Uh, Thanks a lot. I have a much better understanding of Peter than I had before. Good. Well, that's that's good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm thanks you guys coming, uh, even when you're not in Granbury, Texas. That's exciting. Yes, sir. It will it will inquire a very small investment on your part, but uh, uh, if you want to get the best ever written on Psalms, the application, uh, I would get Spurgeon's little three book on Psalms. And he goes through all the Psalms. A lot of his sermons are based upon these things. Uh, and I'm going to uh, use Spurgeon religiously as we do the Psalms. So look at the Psalms, and there's going to be a lot of things we'll learn about them, uh, about the different kind, Messianic, Lament Psalms, and and uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Praise Psalms. We're going to look at all of them. We won't do every Psalm, but we'll do every type. We'll do every... We'll do many examples from each, and uh, we'll look at five books of the Psalms and what they all are and what they do and what they don't do, and it'll be a good study. Uh, and if you don't read the Psalms, you're missing out on the most, I would say, well, I, I can't say that's my opinion, one of the most important books in Scripture. It gives us salvation. It gives us hope. Everything that you need for a life is in the Psalms. Uh, so uh, I want to encourage you to read the Psalms uh, every day uh, and memorize the Psalms. So that's all I got. Anybody have anything to offer, Rad? Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for Peter, for his work, for your work in his heart. How you changed him from a from a uh, alpha male dependent upon himself. Uh, who often spoke before he thought, who acted before he thought, someone like me, and you changed him and you made him humble and submissive and dependent on you. And I thank you for what he taught us, that we're going to suffer persecution, there's going to be false prophets, that we're to be faithful and finish the work. And we thank you that uh, you give us all we need as we are your divine partakers of your grace. Uh, to look forward to your hastening and your coming. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to examine ourselves. Help us to be diligent. Help us to live holy lives, to conduct ourselves in all matter as we ought. And help us to look to the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior. And may our lives give Him glory in everything we do. In your name I pray. Amen.